Good morning. You will notice that on the back of your bulletin uh, is a sermon outline with blanks to be filled in, and the reason I urge you to do it, two reasons. One, later today you may want to review what we covered today, and those notes help you to do that. But then someone later today may ask you, what in the world did the preacher talk about today? And you can not only tell them verbally, but you can uh, put an outline in front of them. Let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. My message today is entitled, Stop Fuming and Start Forgiving. It's part, of course, of the series of messages under the general title of the Fixer Upper series. I am, of course, not overlooking the fact that today is Mother's Day, the occasion when uh, we honor those special persons who brought us into the world and shaped us in so many, many ways. Someone told me about uh, two children, ages six and four, who uh, pooled their allowances because they wanted to go to the florist and buy something for Mother's Day. And so they found a house plant, which they purchased, and they brought it to, the, to their mother, and she was, of course, thrilled. The older child, the six-year-old girl, said, uh, Mama, we really wanted to buy this bouquet we saw at the florist, uh, but it was too expensive. Uh, it had a beautiful ribbon on it that said, uh, rest in peace, but we just couldn't <laughs> afford to buy it. Now, there's an activity in which moms won't get too much opportunity for this side of heaven. One of the endearing traits of mothers that drives school teachers up the wall, by the way, is their difficulty in seeing their children objectively. You know, a mother's heart obstructs her vision. And that's the reason why moms get so upset with umpires in Little League Baseball. <laughs> because when her little Johnny slides into home, he's always safe. Always. The late Bishop Lance Webb uh, told a story one time about a little five-year-old boy who as we say, got up on the wrong side of the bed. He just was ornery from the time he woke up. And so he began misbehaving, and every time his mom had to discipline him, he just got angrier. He was just fuming. And so she said, you need some quiet time. Well, she had this closet, big closet with a light in it. So she just pushed back the hangers and put a stool in there and said, now you're going to sit here for 30 minutes till you calm down. She closed the door. At first, she heard some noises inside there, and then everything got quiet, and that aroused her curiosity. She opened the door and was amazed by what she saw. She said, what have you done? 
He said, I pulled down all your clothes and spit on them, and I spit on you all your shoes, and I'm just sitting here waiting on more spit. Now, I know some grown-ups who get angry and react in the same way. You can look in their face and tell they're just waiting on more spit. Indeed, all of us are tempted at times to harbor grievances, to hold grudges. Now, my plea today is for the Lord's sake and for our own sake that we stop fuming and start forgiving. And in our heads, we know it's good for us. I mean, medical science has taught us that holding grudges and being resentful actually hurts our health because it has effects that relate to stress and anxiety, depression, headaches, backaches, stomach distress, diabetes, hypertension, and heart problems. We know that holding grievances is unhealthy, but... Real forgiveness is difficult because it runs counter to our natural tendencies. Real forgiveness, or what Jesus referred to as real forgiveness from the heart, requires more than willpower. Because it is so contrary to our natural tendencies, it requires the assistance of the Holy Spirit. A vivid example of that forgiveness was featured by the state newspaper this week. A Columbia man named Jarvis Hall admitted that he gunned down a Forest Acres policeman named Greg Aaliyah. He was sentenced to life without parole. And before the sentencing, the relatives were given a chance to speak to the defendant and the courtroom and the judge. And Officer Aaliyah's sister, with deep pain on her face and in her voice, said, if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. I forgive you, Jarvis Hall. I pray you will come to know the peace that passes all understanding in Christ Jesus. And Officer Aaliyah's widow, Cassie, added these words. I found love in my heart for Jarvis Hall. I hope he is able to find redemption. Now, a secular world witnesses that and says, that's crazy. The only thing that's called for is retaliation. It makes no sense to forgive. And yet we Christians see this as the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. In Matthew 6, as read to you earlier, Jesus taught his disciples about forgiveness as he gave them his model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. The New Testament scholar William Barclay says that one petition in that prayer, verse 12, is the most dangerous petition in the whole prayer. It is this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Just think what we're asking here. We're saying, God... Forgive us only to the extent that we forgive all others. And if we withhold it, you withhold it. So there may be some days when it's dangerous to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. If we are holding a grievance, an unresolved enmity inside our hearts. Because if we pray that prayer, we're saying, God, stop your forgiveness of me. 
because I am not willing to pass it on. In chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus told a little parable, a little story about forgiveness. A certain king decided to settle accounts with his servants. And uh, in a magnificent show of generosity, he called in one servant who owed him in our money, let's say $10,000, a pile of money. And he just said, I'm going to write this off. I just cancel this debt. I'm not even going to take a tax deduction. I just write it off. That same servant went to a neighbor who owed him a measly $100 and said, pay me the $100. The neighbor said, give me more time. I can't right now. Oh, no, I'm not going to give you more time. Had him thrown into the debtor's prison. Word got back to the king. The king brought in that ungrateful servant and reamed him out and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all of that, and you went to that neighbor and would not even pass along a little bit of my generosity. You scoundrel. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to reinstitute your full and complete debt, throw you into debtor's prison at hard labor until you can pay it off. And then Jesus said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Why is it so hard to forgive? Oh, it's not hard to forgive the little stuff. I'm talking the big stuff. Why? Because Satan is a great salesman. And he hates forgiveness because he knows that if he can persuade us not to forgive even one other person, our own supply of forgiveness is cut off from God Almighty, and that's what he's about. Satan's major purpose is just to separate us from our source who is God Almighty. And if we are unforgiving, that's a, that's a good way he's found to do that. And so, Satan whispers several very persuasive lies in our ears. The first one is the devil suggests that, that, that we church folks, we're not really sinners, and therefore we don't really need to repent. The devil suggests, you know, the real sinners are those notorious criminals, burglars, terrorists, dope dealers. Ah, they're, now they need to repent. But you, you church folks, come on. Uh, the things you do wrong are, are small, insignificant, almost cute. Well, let me tell you, the Bible does not agree. The Bible says there's not any sin that is small or insignificant because every sin is high treason against God Almighty. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. There is no one righteous, not even one. And in 1 John 3, verse 8, we read, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Scarcely a day goes by that we don't need to forgive and be forgiven. For example, if you have been married for even one year and even have minimal intelligence, you know there are certain subjects you should not bring up with your spouse. You know that. Because they aggravate or hurt. Uh, for example, the time uh, she was trying to respond to a text message and ran the car into a telephone pole. Or the time when he was supposed to be watching the preschool child, but he got so engrossed in a TV ball game that the little child wandered out in the street and the neighbor had to bring it home. Now, you're not supposed to mention those things 
But sometimes we get ornery and aggravated and something devilish whispers into us, dredge it up and slam her with it. And as soon as we do it, the angel of our better natures whistles and says, ooh, you'd have messed up now. You have messed up now. Now, if we treat people we love the most that way, just imagine how we're capable of treating folks we don't even like. Don't believe for a moment that we church folks aren't sinners. Yes. The second lie suggested by Satan, he says this ought to be our attitude. Yes, I will forgive that brother, but only if he apologizes first. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah. Actually, none of us is good enough to demand an apology before we forgive. God is because God is sinless. And God has every right to demand that we repent before he forgives. We do not have, the, none of us occupies that high moral ground. And therefore, to demand an apology before we forgive is presumptuous, arrogant. Third strategy of Satan he tells us that this ought to be our attitude. I'll forgive that person, but I'll never forget what he did. <laughs> Mercy. That one is so foolish that it ought to be clear to all of us. What that indicates is that what forgiveness has taken place is so utterly superficial that it's almost meaningless. It certainly is not forgiveness from the heart. You may recognize the name Clara Barton. She was the founder of the Red Cross. One time a reporter came to Miss Barton and, and asked her about this particularly cruel thing that had been done to her uh, some years earlier, and she didn't appear to remember it. And so the reporter added a couple of specific details related to this incident. And Miss Barton replied to him, I distinctly remember forgetting that incident. Oh, yeah, yeah. What she is saying is, you know, as a Christian, I've been working with God on that one until the memory of it has lost its power or zing. It's almost been forgotten. Now, please don't misunderstand biblical forgiveness. I am not saying that it means that we minimize an offense against us or somebody we love or pretend it didn't happen. We don't play pretend games, we Christians. You know, some people think that if, if, if they've been bullied or cheated or abused, that, that they ought to pretend somehow that the offense wasn't all that bad. No, Bible doesn't say that. The object is not to distort the truth or make ourselves into doormats for other people, no. The object is to cleanse our hearts of the poison of resentment because that poison can wreck your relationship with God, can spoil your disposition, can harm you physically, and steal your joy. Forgiveness is not the same thing as pardon. No. You can forgive someone and still allow for just punishment for an offense. For example, if somebody breaks into your car and steals your stereo system, and let's suppose the police capture that person, 
you, you can and should forgive the thief, but still press charges because the state has a responsibility under Romans chapter uh, 13, verse 4, to bring that thief to justice and teach the thief that stealing is not a good thing. But your forgiveness will release a healing power both in you and in the thief. Two years ago, Dylan Roof killed nine members of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. The relatives and the church decided to forgive, and their forgiveness sent shockwaves around the world. Their forgiveness was critically important for them, their church, and their city. Just imagine for a moment if they had decided, instead of forgiving, to seek retaliation, revenge, to return hate for hate. They could have brought in a couple of nationally known race hustlers to stir up Charleston. We could have had the beginning of the race war that Dylan Roof wanted, but instead they forgave, and it shut down all of that. And that forgiveness riding on the wings of the Holy Spirit may be the only power on earth capable of reaching the heart and soul of Dylan Roof. The whole tragedy of Dylan Roof should inspire us Christians to ask two questions about ourselves. First, have I done or said anything to encourage racists like Dylan Roof? Do my comments about other races or my laughter at a racial joke provide such encouragement? Have I failed to speak when confronted with clear displays of prejudice, racism? Have I been cowardly in my silence? When I could have spoken up and said, you know something, we all bleed blood red and we're made by the same God. Second question. If a person, especially someone of a different race, were to gun down your dearest relative, could you, with the help of God, find it in your heart to forgive? Here are six steps in the forgiveness process. First, acknowledge that you've been hurt. Admit your anger and resentment. It's not helpful to deny the truth or to play pretend games. Acknowledge your hurt. Second, confess that you have sinned. If you're not sure, ask your spouse or an honest friend. Third, acknowledge that God instead of retaliating against you, sent his son to die on a cross to bear your sin. That thought will tenderize your heart. Fourth, face the fact that unless you forgive all persons, God cannot and will not forgive you. All persons, that includes your in-laws. Fifth, with God's help, make a conscious decision to forgive. Whether you feel like it or not, make the decision. And six, ask God daily to give you the power to forgive. And if you've been abused, 
for example. It may take months for God to drain off all of the poison, all of the hurt. But once you've made the decision, the Holy Spirit will provide the power. Now, the message I'm presenting this morning has worldwide implications, including the war relating to the war on terrorism. We must stop the radical Muslim terrorist. But we must not return hate for hate. Yes, we must use military force to stop the terrorist. But military force will not change their hearts. After the terrorists are stopped, we must show them something distinctively Christian. We must be willing to practice and model forgiveness if this world is ever going to experience reconciliation. Martin Luther King Jr. taught America that lesson, and we must never forget it. It is appropriate on Mother's Day to close this message by sharing a true story of forgiveness by a remarkable mother. I am referring to Mrs. Emily Warren Forward, the mother of our beloved director of music, Jack Warren. She died just a few months ago at the ripe old age of 100. Soon afterward, Jack learned something about his mother he did not know before, and he has given me permission to share it with you. First, some background. Jack's father was a Methodist preacher in the state of Florida. While the family was living in the small town of Brandon, on the morning of January 11, 1962, Reverend Warren was taking his son, Ben, to school. He had to go across a railroad crossing. There were no blinking red lights then to warn of an oncoming train. Reverend Warren's car stalled on the railroad tracks, and a train was coming through going much too fast, driven by an engineer who had been drinking on duty. The train crashed into the car, killing Reverend Warren instantly. Miraculously, his son, Ben, escaped serious injury. Mrs. Warren was left a widow with four children, ages 15, 13, 8, and 6. Here is part of the story that Jack did not know before. At, at the time of his mother's death, Jack and his siblings put in a conference call to a family friend named Dick Stowers who was formerly the director of the funeral home in Brandon, they called to inform him of their mother's death. And Mr. Stowers said, I want to share something about your mother that I have not shared before. At your father's funeral back in 1962, I noticed an unfamiliar man standing in the back who was clearly distraught. I approached him and asked if I could help. He was the engineer on the train that had killed Reverend Warren. The man asked me if I thought Mrs. Warren might be willing to speak with him. I asked Mrs. Warren, and she agreed to do so. She approached the man, and he immediately broke down in tears, apologizing over and over again. Mrs. Warren took that man's face between her hands and said to him, my husband would not want you to go through the rest of your life with this burden. We will be okay, and I forgive you. 
that incredible display of love and mercy not only kept Mrs. Warren's heart free of bitterness, it may have been the message from God that could save that engineer's soul. If God were to name the person that you need to forgive first, who would it be? Once you discern that name, for God's sake and your own sake, stop fuming and start forgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.